1: How is the DeFi space adapting to a developing banking crisis? Welcome to Cryptoverse, a live show every Monday and Wednesday where we focus on big, interesting, and promising developments in this space. I'm Ash Bennington. Today, I'm joined by Ben Whitby, who looks after regulatory affairs at Curado, the cross-chain protocol for digital asset managers and traders. Ben, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Ash. Really great pleasure to be here.
1: Well, it's a great pleasure to have you back. It's always a pleasure to have you back, but especially now uh, in terms of the timing on this, you and I were chatting a little bit off camera about all of the things that are happening in the banking space right now. What's your big picture take on how this influences the DeFi ecosystem?
0: I mean, DeFi continues to be successful. You know, the the methods and the models of over collateralization are holding up, they're holding up strong. Um, Crypto assets are becoming a place to go when others are fearful of the traditional banking system. You and I have been saying it for a long, long, long time. And it feels like now that the, uh, the tides have turned and people that even were skeptics are, are jumping in. Yeah, let's talk a little
1: bit about this. How do you view what's happened in the traditional banking system? We'll talk a little bit uh, about its influence on DeFi in just a second. But, big picture, give us where we are at this time that seems uh, to be roiling with all types of instability right now.
0: I mean, so everybody's been very familiar with what's happened in the kind of the macro space with interest rates kind of going up and the pain that's been inflicted in trying to um, the traditional banking models of various different scenarios to try and get inflation under control. What we've got is a, is a, is a basically it's a failure of the BIS capital structures. So, you know, the, the rules that allow us to mark to market various different assets have been tested. And it's been proven that mark to market is going to be something that everything needs to be done and it can't just be kind of forgotten and gazzied over because it's a government bond so, so going let's to explain need to, market to market everything
1: Let's explain what this means mark to market for people who don't have accounting backgrounds. This is the idea uh, that when you own government securities particularly in this case uh, which uh, have a risk the lowest risk asset weighting uh, essentially they just get marked to maturity on the book meaning. They get held uh, at par on the book but what we see interest rates rising pushing bond prices down uh, and that therefore has to be marked to market as soon as there's a sale it's a really complex uh sort of network of regulation talk a little bit about risk-weighted assets talk a little bit about mark to market versus mark to maturity because i know there are a lot of people in the crypto space uh, who are really baffled by this conversation when we use the traditional finance terms
0: um so The idea with marked market is, is exactly as it says on the tin, it's, it's what the market will, will provide for you for an asset at a particular point in time, and that particular point in time we see in the crypto space every single day. Um, but there are certain assets that are deemed to be allowed to be held as marked maturity, which means that you can just maintain part. And it's almost, if you put it into a DeFi perspective, like, USDC maintaining the dollar peg, no matter what happens in the market, no matter where the transparency lies. <laughs> it's like, this is a dollar, it's a dollar, it's a dollar, it's a dollar. You can trust us. And actually, we've all seen that we can't be trusted in terms of that, and that the true value of an asset is only what you can sell it for in the market, hence, mark to market. market.
1: Yeah, that last sentence is absolutely critical for people to understand. Uh, Par, for those who don't know, means just 100 cents on the dollar at face value. Uh, But the challenge is, of course, uh, even though there's no credit risk on, for example, U.S. Treasury securities, or theoretically no credit risk on U.S. Treasury securities, you still have the mark-to-market risk, uh, meaning that you'll see interest rates rise, bond prices fall, and you won't be able to sell those positions for what they're carried on the books at. That's been the challenge that we've been hearing about uh, with SVB, uh, and other banks, uh, in this regional banking space.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's a, it's an accounting rule that is allowed to, to exist. It's existed for many years. Um, given the unprecedented circumstances that we've been in and in terms of the, the, the rapid increase in interest rises, um, various different players that are holding these assets, just haven't had an opportunity to, to work out and balance their risk in quite the right way. And the accounting positions just led them just down a complete dark alley. So there was a massive duration risk. Um, and obviously it's had a significant impact in the traditional space uh, below the the the, GSIBs, the, the financially secure um, systemically important banks that have been deemed too big to fail.
1: Let's talk a little bit about liquidity risk and mismatches uh, on duration. This is the, the sort of fundamentally what banks do uh, is uh, lend long and borrow short. These create these potential uh, instabilities, but this is the nature of the banking business. For people who don't have that traditional finance background, Ben, explain what this means and why it's so significant in understanding this
0: banking crisis. I mean, so it's all about portfolio risk. Um, and the fractional reserve banking structure that exists today means that banks, when they get a deposit, say $1,000, they can fractionally reserve that and create several loans of $1,000 out to several different counterparties. Um, that fractional reserve banking position puts portfolio risk out into the market. And the last time that we saw a massive correlation of portfolio risk in the market was really kind of the the mortgage backed securities in 2008. What it means is if you can't rebalance that, then you're going to end up scrabbling around for liquidity to to pay your debts. And sometimes you've got assets that are valuable as it says on the books, but there's just no market. There's no, there's no body on the other side of that trade to take that asset and actually kind of enable you to. To get liquidity to pay your bills and to pay your other kind of depositors. Yeah, you mentioned USDC
1: depegging. Archer, I don't know if we have that chart queued up. If we could take a look at it, uh, because I think this really shows uh, precisely what happened. Well, there it is. Uh, you can see that massive dip. That's what happens when a so-called stablecoin uh, depegs uh, in a significant way. The challenge here was, I believe, three point three billion dollars of some forty to forty-five. Billion dollars uh, in total assets uh, that were held uh, by the Circle Coalition or the governing coalition of USDC were held on the books at Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, and you saw that DPEG happen as a consequence. Talk a little bit about this, Ben, and explain what caused that steep leg down.
0: The, the steep leg down was fear, fear in the marketplace of people displacing uh, their USDC for other assets and not wanting to, to hold. USDC as an asset and therefore wanting to get out of that into anything other than USDC, I think what's happened and that, that chart is pretty amazing. Isn't it It, that rapid decline followed by the, the rapid climb back up to stability. And that's because once the transparency came through with where the assets and the dollars and the bonds and the treasury yields were actually being held, it actually turned out that at the end of this systemic test, the asset actually ended up in a much better position with a much more transparent position and assets and kind of treasury bonds held at um, tier one banks. Now that it, it's kind of ironic that operation choke point has in an effort to, to cripple the crypto space and the DeFi space. Not only um, resulted in a stable coin that is more transparent um, with assets held at a higher tier of banking structure but actually we've we've ended up kind of having a pretty systemic effect on those banks that aren't GSEBs um, with people being pretty fearful and moving money out of the regional banks into into the jP morgan's and other kind of more tier one capital banks.
1: Well, let me make two quick provisos there on what you just said. Maybe you can comment on them first. Uh, Operation choke 2.0. Uh, this is uh, the Nick Carter coin term uh, for essentially uh, what's viewed as a government crackdown on cryptocurrencies more broadly throughout the financial system. This is something that has been uh, denied by various uh, folks in and around government. Uh, so this is one one thing to point out. And the second point uh, I think that's, that's, that's critical to make here uh, is that uh, regarding the capital flight from regional banks to GSIBs, uh, these, as you say, are the globally systemically important banks. They have uh, tighter regulation. They also have the ability to raise funds uh, much more easily at cheaper costs from a broader variety of sources. Uh, but the risk here is, in essence, that you see a major flight away from the regional banks here in the United States, you wind up with a situation like they have in Canada, a few banks uh, that essentially control the entire economy. Uh, And in many ways, you know, this idea of local lenders, there's a reason uh, why folks in uh, business like to work with them. They understand the businesses that they're in, they understand the regions. Uh, There are also certainly problems uh, that can come as a consequence of having the entire U.S. economy held by four systemically, held in the palm
0: of the hand of four systemically important banks. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of historic value as to, to why these regional banks have, have become such strong players in the regions that they operate. Because the geography of the lands that they operate and the, the closeness that they had to their clients and customers. Um, obviously digital assets don't have any of these um, geography drawbacks and geography kind of positions shaping them. Cause obviously the, the assets themselves are digital. But it has been the the more regional banks the more um the the banks that are more ambitious in terms of their growth opportunities that have been supporting the crypto industry at this point in time right Uh,
1: while geography may not be a factor will be less of a factor in the in this sort of digitized world certainly uh the sector specific expertise that some of these banks have developed uh would still play a role in in sort of the 2023 financial ecosystem.
0: Yeah, 100 percent And you, that's very apparent with uh, Silicon Valley Bank. You know, the 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 risk takers in this space, the the players that were putting assets into the crypto space which is, you know, high risk technology sector. Um they would use their relationships and their their influence to to get bank accounts opened with uh, with the Silicon Valley Bank for sure, um, yeah, yeah. It, but I'm not sure that it was the, the the crypto influence that really kind of brought down Silicon Valley Bank, other than the uh, the mismatch and duration risk that was uh, apparent on the books.
1: Yeah. And the ultimate bank run effect uh, when there were uh, the fear or the perception that the bank had become unstable and people just went and pulled their assets out. Uh, and yeah. by the way, uh, that's probably a pretty natural reaction. What happens uh, when you have a relationship with uh, with Silicon Valley Bank or any other regional bank? Uh, and you also have a relationship with, you know, uh, City or JPM uh, or, uh, another one of the GSIbs that there's just going to be capital flight because people have to secure. I've, I've heard from people who I know personally who have said, uh, they made that decision with their business themselves when they had the opportunity, uh, to move capital to a larger bank, they did so. Yeah. No, it's,
0: you know, it's exactly the same as Terra Luna collapsing in crypto world. <laughs> people were just like, no, thank you very much. We're going to take these assets out. We're going to take them back. And the underlying asset in this case. Silicon Valley bank as the entity collapsed and crypto's case, the total asset collapsed. So
1: talking of which we've given this great primer on what's been happening in the traditional financial space, we've set the table, so to speak here on uh, on banking. Let's talk a little bit about DeFi. Let's talk a little bit about digital assets and how this potentially influences them. Uh, What's your thought big picture about the influence that this crisis has had on the DeFi
0: ecosystem? Well, so I think assets in the crypto space have um, undergone quite a positive change in terms of the, the, the awareness of it being slightly correlated in terms of the traditional banking sector, in terms of DeFi, it's pretty much steady as she goes. We've had a number of different failures um, that over the last six months have been more closely related to centralized uh, or CFI type of activity, where it's kind of that bridge. And there's a, there's a strong intermediary, but if you look at something like uh, the liquidity protocol protocol and LUSD, it's been incredibly resilient, it's been stable. And in fact, the, the assets have been growing. So yeah, it's certainly a testing time, but I don't think that DeFi has spared badly at all out of all this because of the way that the structures of the code has been has been drafted that's not to say that's it's 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 perfect by any means shape or form right but the opportunity to to act as expected is very real and it has operated
1: as expected we know it's so interesting not that long ago a number of months ago Uh, We were talking about a whole series of hacks in the DeFi space. Uh, Governance hacks, um, flash loan attacks, actual flaws in the underlying code, all of these DeFi-specific risks. Uh, And it was interesting, lots of uh, folks who were very anti-DeFi sort of made the argument, hey, this is why DeFi is a terrible idea, right? And what we're seeing now is really, there is no ideal system. We've seen these challenges, these flaws, these, these known weaknesses uh, within the TradFi space that have very much come to bear, uh, made themselves manifest in a very clear and troubling way. Uh, and now we see some of the, uh, the, the strengths of DeFi relative to Cfi. It's really interesting to see how that's beginning to
0: shake out. And it, it, it's really interesting. Um, I think the flash loan risks are very real still. Right. You know, there's still a lot of manipulation that can happen there. And that happens whenever you get a thinly traded asset that can be manipulated. Um, And because the, the smart contracts rely on the price feeds from a very small number of, um, of chain sources, whether it be kind of uh, the price reference feed of something like Chainlink or some of the other kind of competitors like um, Covalent or something like that, then you're gonna you're gonna look to be able to manage systemic risk on that. And you can look for parallels and things like LIBOR when LIBOR was manipulated, the various different positions that took place on that respect. But um at the end of the at the end of the day, it comes back to the 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 opening comments that we made about marking to market. You have to be you have to be able to be confident that you can liquidate an asset at a particular price in order to to base your value off it. Yeah.
1: Hey everyone, we're gonna take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Uh, Great conversation. Listen, let me just invite the viewers in uh, to join us. Put down your questions in the chat below, wherever you're watching. We'll ask the best ones on air later in this conversation. Remember, Real Vision crypto members take priority, but the good news is membership is free go to realvision.com forward slash crypto to sign up that's realvision.com forward slash crypto to sign up uh with that said let's come back to the conversation uh, another thing that's interesting to me that's come up as a consequence of what's happening in the tradfi space uh, is some of the, the the challenges that we see around stable coins the idea of how do you essentially tie on-chain assets to off-chain dollars this is a question uh, that pretty clearly i think it's reasonable to say has not yet been fully solved Uh, three opportunities sort of are are out there uh, for the future. I'll just list them very briefly. CBDCs, of course, central bank uh, digital currencies, treasury-backed stable coins, and one that's come up recently, uh, these so-called deposit coins. JP Morgan appears to be working on one right now. Any thoughts on how that may change the DeFi ecosystem if and when those technologies
0: come online? I mean, personally, I can't see a central bank digital-backed currency in CDBC hitting DeFi, um i can't see anybody apart from the clearing banks the gseps being allowed to hold those assets um predominantly because they break fractional reserve why would you hold anything else other than (laughs) other than a cdbc if you're given the choice and given the option um because you
1: can't maybe because you can't lend it out maybe there's some legislation or regulation around that and it's one potential answer
0: yeah maybe um I definitely think that, um, the clearing banks and the, the gseps will be potentially anybody that has to, to kind of evidence kind of capital controls, they might be allowed to hold, uh, CDPCs. Um, I think there'll be a tremendous help when it comes to monitoring the resolution requirements. I mean, you know, we could put resolution requirements on chain today and have real time transparency to the 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 Fed, the Bank of England, the various different centralised counterparties that are responsible for monitoring resolution um, and risk of these systemic organisations. Um, in terms of the deposit coins, I think they are probably a needed natural next step. Um, I had a great deal of concerns about the the stable coins that were coming into dis- being discussed by individual banks and kind of made several occasions, parallels with the, uh, the wildcat banking sector, um, of the 1860s, where the gold just wasn't there. The gold wasn't up in the hills and the mountains, the way that the wildcat banks said that they would, um, transparency is going to be key on, on everything that we're doing really. So the more auditors, um, accountants, um understanding that there is on block fine trading spaces and various different uh, scenarios the better
1: yeah and in many ways this technology is uniquely well positioned to provide precisely that transparency when you talk about accountants and regulators just to give our audience a bit of an idea of your background uh you spent seven years at hsbc uh, as a working in regular con- regulatory conduct and financial crimes and also three years at pwc in governance, risk, and compliance earlier in your career. You were an analyst at Floyd's of London. This is a tremendous amount of experience looking at precisely these kinds of issues and thinking about the challenges that we see in the banking system, as well as the opportunities that DeFi can provide.
0: Yeah, and a lot of what I did during my career all resolved around making sure that we could report correctly to the central authorities. Um, and you know, I remember after Lehman collapsed, uh, in two thousand and eight, we worked with the various different regulators around the world as part of PwC, and then stepping across the road into HSBC, we had to encounter kind of interactions with the then FCA to make sure that we could demonstrate resolution capabilities and resolution capabilities that we put in place. Well, what does in that mean? for people Who don't know about bank resolution? Um, so there were certain guidelines and, and structures that are now in force that mean that a bank periodically has to demonstrate its capability to meet its capital requirements and the 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 risk of it falling to a f- place where it can't meet those capital requirements um it would be under the wing of a regulator and given a soft landing so you wouldn't get the sharp kind of default of a, of a banking structure that that happens that's happened with svb if the resolution requirements were managed correctly it would be given a soft landing and you'd be able to kind of move away and navigate that position so you wouldn't be exposed to the kind of shocks that um that we've faced over the last couple of weeks the challenge is is that in order to get that information today at least back in back in when we first kind of put this together It was several weeks of analysts running around, getting information from various different data sources, looking at historic, so obviously everything was historic, holding positions um, up to a particular point in time. And the regulators would take a look at the information that we put on the table and they would take a measured and managed assessment of that information and they would give us direction. with blockchain all the banks could build systems that allowed the centralized regulators to see inside their resolution requirements at any one point of time and it would basically be like having um green lights on top of wall street every bank on the street would have green light red light green light amber light red light and the the surveillance of right. the banking system would be like a daily activity for the for the regulators to be able to, to kind of step in and assess and as soon as they see that needle's kind of moving they can have a targeted focused conversation
1: yeah and it can be continuous and in real time even the best yeah. audits now are snapshots of a sort of historical events or historical uh pictures of what a bank's capital structure looks like this is something uh through DeFi that can truly be Real time measured on a transaction by transaction basis. Uh, it can be reported publicly, or some component of it can be reported publicly. It's a pretty extraordinary idea, concept, world that we could be moving toward in this
0: space. Yeah, I mean, it's been 10 years. <laughs> We've had the opportunity to do this for over 10 years. I mean, um, arguably, you know, ever since kind of smart contracts and kind of um, change like Ethereum have kind of existed and the ability to do things in a smart contract way it's been um, easier but you know there's no reason that we couldn't have done it with some other kind of centralized DLT chain technology's been there to to be able to do this it's just just haven't haven't taken that that initiative yet
1: So let me ask you this at risk of going too deep down the rabbit hole. But you mentioned capital requirements for people who don't have a background in traditional finance. Maybe uh, many of our viewers come to us from uh, the technology side and their interest in crypto. This idea of what capital requirements are, how it works uh, in terms of its relationship to fractional reserve banking, is really a critical point to understand. At the 50,000 foot level, the quick primer sketch for people who don't understand capital requirements talk about how capital requirements provide cushions against risk in banking.
0: Well, it's exactly as you kind of described there, that cushion of risk. So the, the idea is that for any bank or any kind of financial institution that has loans or uh, risk out in the marketplace that they keep on their own balance sheet, a proportion of assets in relation to the amount of risk that they've got out in the marketplace and the amount of assets that they've actually got held on their balance sheet is actually discounted. So things like government bonds are given top tier weighting. So every dollar that you've got in a government bond equates to one dollar of risk asset that you can put against your capital. BIS actually came out with a framework and guidelines. By the way, people this is the Bank of International
1: Settlements that coordinates central bank activity globally.
0: Yeah, they came out with a, an initiative a couple of months ago to actually look at Bitcoin and what kind of discount weighting um holding bitcoin on your balance sheet would have and obviously if you if your weighting is zero it doesn't matter how many assets you've got on your balance sheet you're not going to add to your capital reserve if your weighting is 100 then every dollar that you put on there is is going to increase that that reserve and assets throughout the the spectrum let's say from dollars to bitcoin are given a specific tier of how much they're discounted so where did they land BIS, I mean, it was sub 5%. I mean, I hope that would improve over the course of the next decade. But um, they're not going out there shouting to the traditional banking sector that they need to put Bitcoin onto their balance sheet just right now.
1: Well, listen, when you look at the max drawdown charts of Bitcoin and you see those numbers uh, slightly increasing, I guess, from uh, the uh, high 90s, which is just disgusting, uh, to some number less than that. Uh, it gives you some sense that it is improving in terms of volatility, but it's still whatever it is, an eighty vol asset.
0: Yeah, man, I think it's slightly less than eighty vol, but it's certainly out there. Um, and then, of course, you've got the the long tail of spectrum of other assets as you kind of move out of the 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 top tier assets to much more kind of uh, risky and speculative assets. Um, but yeah, that the the idea of putting money and putting assets into something that could go to a million bucks or could go to zero is, is always, <laughs> it's right. always out there. And it's all about risk positions. And I think I'm of the opinion that people should be allowed to make their own informed choices on those risk positions and enter into a position that they, they wish to, um, there are certain things that are happening in the regulatory space at the moment that. Are really difficult in terms of excluding organizations and individuals from from that asset class. So it's uh, yeah, it's very difficult. Let me ask you this
1: because it was a concept that came up during my conversation last week with Perry and Boring. Uh, this is a great idea, uh, I think, to discuss and to talk about and to unpack. Uh, Perry was making the argument about fully reserved banking, full reserve banking here. Uh, in the U S as well as abroad, are there opportunities for full reserve banking rather than fractional reserve banking in terms uh, of some of the stability issues that we've seen around these banks,
0: uh, recently? I mean, that's what circles is with USDC, it's fully reserved banking. It's a, uh, it's a money market instrument. It's near term money market instrument. It's, um, it's ironic that USDC is going to be seen as a much safer asset for people because of the transparency that you've got, rather than some of the other kind of places that you can hold assets. Um, Personally, I don't think that we're ever going to get to a position where banks are fully reserved. I just don't think there's enough money or dollars in the world to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially when you look at things like the derivatives market, you know, there's always going to be risk on risk off and. You know, a zero sum game is effectively in human's nature.
1: Well, let me play devil's advocate here. The idea that Circle uh, USDC can be fully reserved, uh, it may be fully reserved internally, but if the assets are held at fractional reserve banks that have the potential uh, to fail as a consequence of their inability to manage liquidity risk, is that really fully reserved?
0: No, I mean, and that's the thing. You start going down the rabbit hole and somewhere, right. somewhere it's turtles all the way down, right? that's that's the nature of fiat.
1: yeah i wonder if there's a way i i uh actually was thinking about this this morning in order to get to fully reserved banks i think there'd be two problems that you'd have to solve first you would have to find a way to legally wall off effectively the fully reserved assets from the fractional reserve assets because the risk would be if you had a, a, a fractional reserve bank which frankly, is just about every bank in the world today, at least in the Western world, uh, you would have have, uh, this sort of fractional reserved uh, entity with a fully reserved entity uh, attached to it. And the question would be, if there were a failure of the parent company, the fractional reserved uh, asset company, uh, what would happen? Would you essentially become a general creditor if you held even the fully reserved assets? That's number one. And number two, with fully reserved banking, the question is, how do you monetize it? Obviously, When you have uh, fractional reserve banks, you can take those deposits in, you can lend them out, you can generate return on the assets uh, against the liabilities that you hold in DDA accounts. But what happens in a fully reserved bank system where you don't have the ability uh, to lend the assets? Where do you make the money? I guess one example uh, of a solution to that could be fees. You could simply charge to transact in it. And if the uh, you know, model was efficient enough. Hopefully those fees could be small enough uh, and those institutions that were banking on a fully reserved basis might have the opportunity to make money. But boy,
0: those are two really big unanswered questions. Well, so let's look at this from a crypto lens. When you when you start to look at fully reserved banking, you can you can look at assets that are, you know, fully backed. You need to bank to yield on that. You need to make a return on that. Um, you're looking for incredibly low risk cause any lending incurs risk. I would say that probably staking is as close as we're ever going to get to a risk free rate where the, the instantiation of the staked assets and they certainly carry risk and you have to do work in terms of making sure that you don't incur that, that slashing risk, but those staked assets being formed as part of that protocol starts to yield you know, in Ethereum's case between four and eight percent depending on what's what's happening with that that asset you match that in to the, a stable coin that could be built upon that and you potentially are talking about a fully reserved with yield system yeah two challenges
1: that currently exist in the system one uh, of course is what happens if that underlying staking asset is deemed a security by authorities here in the United States and abroad throughout the developed world. That's a question that we see with Bitcoin now. We had the Attorney General here in the state of New York where I live uh, file suit in New York State Supreme Court alleging that Ethereum is in fact a security. That's one open question. Open question number two, uh, something that you've spent a great deal more time thinking about than I have as someone who worked in financial crimes is what happens uh, when an OFAC, that's the Office of Foreign Asset Controls uh, at US Treasury, this is the primary sanctions regulator here in the United States, uh, deems that a transaction has been uh, engaged in by someone on the SDN list, that's the specially designated national list. Essentially, these are folks who have been blacklisted from the banking system here in the United States. What happens when you have this irresistible force hitting this immovable object, when you have this culture of Ethereum, uh, which talks about censorship resistance and uh, and, uh, and credible neutrality? That's one way of saying uh, that all actors on a network are treated equally by the underlying protocol. What happens when you have US directors and officers uh, at a company in the United States, a Kraken or a uh, Coinbase, theoretically speaking, uh, who essentially are running stake pools. What do they do? They, do they do they get out of the staking business entirely? Do they include those SDN OFAC sanctioned uh, transactions, uh, or do they or do they exclude them and risk getting slashed? That is like just. I know it's a theoretical example, but man, that's one hell of a paradox.
0: Yeah, it really is a paradox. I mean, so sanctions. I think are the, the pinnacle in terms of financial crime. You never ignore sanctions. Sanctions are there for a reason. You have to be mindful of what the objectives of the sanctions are in place. And certainly cannot be flippant about the, the position that the sanction narrative is, um, is putting on the table. Now, where we, where we get to, in terms of the protocol. You start to kind of expand that out to kind of real world positions and, you know, at all parts of any kind of technology stack. You can always look at various different actors. So for example, if you look at a network such as a telephone network, are the, are the operators of that telephone network, are they explicit in any kind of sanctioned activity because they allowed sanctioned individuals to transact and communicate using their their telephone network. And I think at some point we have to make a, a a more kind of nuanced position on that and, and really kind of look for intent. What was the intent of the, the parties and the individuals involved? Um, and I think at the protocol position, it's exceptionally hard to do that. Exceptionally hard because it is so open what we've seen in. The dapp space is various different players like Chainalysis and CoinFirm, TOM, come together and provide free open services to enable teams to put sanctions checking into their DApps. Um, There's no easy answer. We just got to work through it and find out what the accepted norms are, are going to be in this this next world. Um, I don't think they'll be too far off from today's norms. Mm. but we don't necessarily have the banks as trusted, helpful third parties in this space when you can act directly with smart contracts and directly peer to peer.
1: Well, that's so well said, uh, and I think that the metaphor of a telephone company is probably the one that folks in, the, for example, the Ethereum community would point to and say, "Hey, look, uh, if bad actors use a telephone network, you don't blame uh, AT and or Verizon for it. Uh, this is this uh, this idea of credible neutrality that all actors in the network are treated equally, but it's interesting because you you kind of have this collision between the empirical arguments and the normative ones, uh, whether or not That would be the ideal, whether or not that's something we should move toward. And that's something that's subject to debate philosophically. The reality is, as I understand it at least, the way the law is written today, uh, that if banks essentially forward along transactions by sanctioned entities, they can be held legally liable for it. And that is why there is so much concern among U.S. particularly regulated businesses uh, about engaging in those transactions. And that creates that very paradox that we were
0: just talking about. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's it's not something that we can take lightly. Um, the sanctions are there for a reason, they need to be respected. Hey everyone, we're gonna take
1: another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Yeah, uh, obviously a lot more to come in this space and we're gonna be following it closely. And I hope you can keep coming on and joining us in these conversations because you truly do have the expertise in the background. Uh, to really add to this in a very meaningful way. And these are very sort of challenging conversations because they require a detailed knowledge uh, of the crypto slash digital asset ecosystem uh, where you spend all of your time now, as well as an understanding of the legal regulatory compliance and legislative framework from the traditional banking system where all of these issues have been adjudicated uh, and argued over much more closely. So much great stuff to talk about. We've got some some questions coming into us right now from our viewers. The first one uh, is from a friend of the show, Santiago Velez. Hello, Santiago. I'm glad you're watching. Uh, how do you envision institutions entering DeFi and what will the role of MPCs be in that process? Do you see the likes of Fidelity using a DEX and what is the prerequisite for that? By the way, I should say MPC so- is multi-party, uh, uh computation, uh, and DEX is decentralized exchange.
0: So I, I would say that def- institutions definitely need to get into DeFi. They, they need to explore the boundaries of exactly, uh, the control structures that are around there in, in that respect. Um, it all depends in terms of objectives. The the biggest thing that I see organizations do at this particular moment in time are, one, getting exposure to this space, two, looking to stake assets where they can to, to get into that risk-free risk-free rate um, and gain yield, and two, start to put different kind of DeFi packages together um, that enable them to, to offer various different products to um. To their clients and to their users, but the opportunities to 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 navigate in in DeFi are significant. You know, I always come back to a really nice example that happened at HSBC before I left with with Ken Energy. Now they were Ken Energy was looking to do an FX transaction, and um, the FX traders on the desk of HSBC front run that transaction, they are caught up by the, the U S regulators. One of them, I think went to prison and that scenario where you're putting an intermediary in between your, your objective and your desired goal always is subject to the opportunity to be front run. Um, with DeFi, everybody's got a point on the table, you know, exactly what you're getting and everybody is going to be able to get better, more competitive fees. So yeah, I'm a strong advocate for DeFi just deep in, in FX currency swaps.
1: What does that mean exactly? And how might you see it be implemented? Because FX cross-border payments, cross-border transactions are a huge use case in the DeFi space. How would you see that working?
0: Well, first of all, I think we need more transparency, no, sorry, not more transparency, more privacy actually in, in DeFi, because a lot of the challenges that you have are one of the some of the benefits of of transacting with um, DeFi smart DeFi protocols, uh, contracts, and AMMs is the the opportunity to enter into a an executionable trade and understand exactly what you're getting out at the back end. But because everything is so transparent, people can actually I think the term in crypto is whale watch, they watch the addresses on the blockchains and set up programmatic alerts to copy various different trading activity. And if that copy activity extends into institutions, then we end up in a very difficult position because, you know, we will end up with other players trading against that position and trying to take advantage of the uh, the opportunities that are in that space. And it's being manifested in traditional regs by giving institutions large order uh, exemptions, meaning they don't have to report their orders for a period of time until after they've made the trade, the transaction in DeFi. You don't get any of that. Even transaction is open. It's transparent to everybody. So I actually think that we need more transparent, more privacy and less transparency on DeFi, and we need to consider the the positions of um reporting assets and reporting transactions after the fact without making them completely transparent on chain so that's
1: interesting that's a a kind of an almost fragmentation greater uh privacy for those enacting those engaging in those transactions on the one hand and yet at the other uh side essentially the capacity to report those ex post to the various authorities that would need access to that information
0: yeah, and it kind of goes against um, the kind of challenges of sanctions as well, because if you've engaging with a position that you know has got sanctioned actors involved, what, what position should you actually take in that? And if you think about an AMM, which is a basically a, an automated bot, if an institution is going to, um, participate with that AMM to actually undertake the activity they want to achieve, um, they have to be confident that that AMM is running with clean assets now, if you start with hundred percent clean assets over time, your needle is only going to go one way. It's unlikely to, to come the other way. Um, meaning it's going to go down
1: from there that
0: the, yeah. Inevitable, I mean, you know, the laws of entropy, everything starts off bright and shining and ends up cold and black, it's like the, or inevitably the, uh, the milkshake that you're making with nice fresh strawberries, as soon as you end up adding some sneaky rotten strawberries in there, first few are fine. By the time you've added 50% rotten strawberries, it's not really milkshake anymore, so you need to be comfortable that the the asset pool that you're dealing with is of a sufficiently high quality um, to returning assets and if it's not of a sufficiently high quality then you're going to have to want to pull your assets out and then you end up with exactly the same position that we've seen with a bank run where everybody's kind of scrambling to get their assets out quickly
1: yeah here's a question from paul on the real vision website i've heard coinbase is making some big changes any more
0: information on what been worked what's being worked on there. I mean I'm not I'm not close or inside to, to the Coinbase position. I do see what they do publicly. Um I think Brian Armstrong is doing an amazing job kind of pushing various different narratives in that respect. I think that the move into base and their releasing of a DeFi um layer two is a genius move. It's going to give people a lot of confidence to go and explore into this space um and it's going to allow them to build different things um all kind of backed up and you know the the arguments of the blockchain trilemma about speed security um and transaction flow put is is falling away with the the devolution of the blockchain space and i think you know we've said it before uh, several several times we now exist in a multi-chain world and I don't see that going away anytime soon. I mean I think there was uh there was talk of I think Arbitrum pushing out uh, a layer three a roll up on their Arbitrum roll up <laughs> so it's 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 things are going to get cheaper and quicker and easier to transact.
1: Yeah it is interesting to see how these L1s twos and threes uh potentially have the ability to solve the trilemma of, of security decentralization and scalability we should say that base is the ethereum based coinbase layer two protocol uh that they are working on uh, and has been released i believe uh, uh t- already
0: yeah it's been out now three or four weeks so some um, yeah the coinbase team comp- doing amazing amazing job i mean. a bit biased obviously because they're an investor in uh, the Credo project so um, yeah they've always got our support in in everything that they're pushing through more importantly the values that they hold um, are true to the space I think they get quite a rough time from people in the, the the crypto community because they're big and successful and they're trying to do the right thing
1: Hey, Doug Credo, I just wanted to ask a question. This one comes to us from Mr. Ali on YouTube. As decentralization becomes more important for the crypto industry, how does Credo balance the need for decentralized custody solutions with the regulatory requirements that come with holding digital assets? Boy, uh, Mr. Ali has been paying attention. That's exactly what we've been talking about. How do you guys balance that out?
0: Simple. The assets that hold on Credo are users' assets. They're not Credo's assets. There is no. There is there is no confusion about where title sits with with those assets when you're dealing and you're holding your assets with the credo blockchain they they're your assets simple as that now there's going to be different things that we can um help organizations do in terms of maintaining and managing that spectrum of ownership um but if you want to you can maintain 100 percent ownership and title If you want to, you can build structures and governance structures that enable you, nobody to actually hold title of those assets. So for example, you could build a a BLS policy threshold of, um, three of six players, for example, and you could give two key shares to one organization, two key shares to another and two key shares to the third and final. Now at any one point in time, nobody has custody of those assets, mm. but yet you all have the ability to kind of collaborate, come together and move those assets and therefore have total. It's yeah, a the- very different world.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say this touches on uh, Santiago Velez's point about MPC, multi-party computation. Uh, some of the interesting things that are happening with account abstraction on Ethereum really is a fascinating world in terms of your ability to make this money truly programmable and based on Logic that gets specified within the code.
0: Yeah, I mean, so we've had a lot of conversations about account abstraction over the last couple of weeks and how it's going to be the death of MPC. Um, it's really not. You know, we've got some ideas that we're going to be talking to the market in the next couple of weeks, months, where we're talking about MPC and account abstraction working together. Now, that things get very exciting when you start talking about that. And it's predominantly because of the way that account abstraction works. Now account abstraction, the way that um, the the changes that are being made are incredibly beneficial to the, the, the ecosystem. But although it enables a smart contract on a chain to be a first class citizen when it comes to making transactions and activity um you're always constrained and bound by that that ecosystem now credo one of our strengths is cross-chain communication and we're going to be looking to enable cross-chain communication with something called general message passing which will allow you to control all chains
1: Here's another question from Mr. Ali. Any thoughts on the recent rush of depositors to money market funds, and how will this affect the banking crisis? Uh, let me just ask this before uh, we get into that question. For folks who don't know what a money market fund is, talk a little bit about what that means, uh, what some of the risks are with money market funds, and how they differ from traditional de- demand deposit accounts in the event of an insolvency.
0: I mean, it's to do with the ability to actually find liquidity and actually the the predominantly in the tiering and layering of those different assets. So, you know, you and I were talking earlier about the various different um, credit positions, equity holding positions, debt positions, et cetera, et cetera, and the seniority of where you come into, in terms of that, that play. The money on market instruments are representations, as close to as representations as you can get to actually holding assets, but they're built via holding kind of various different tiers and flavors of bonds, um, which means that you can, you can sell them with much more confidence and there's more liquid position so people can move in and move out. And I think, yeah, it's, it's a direct consequence of people trying to get to a fully reserved system.
1: Yeah, very well said Ben. Uh, an incredible conversation here today. We've touched on a lot in the depths of the banking space uh, and to the depths of crypto. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with.
0: It's a, So this, this crypto space is very, very risky. It's still very risky. Um, but what's been apparent is that there have been now sy- systemic tests against it. And things are surviving incredibly well. In fact, you could actually say it's, it's anti-fragile for, you Mm. know, for whatever that made up term that Taleb kind of made all those years ago. Um, we're getting stronger and stronger because with each failure, we're finding the weaknesses and we're showing them up and holding them up. And so, yeah, we're getting, we're in a much stronger position now than in 2018. We're in a much stronger position now than... Like 2015, when things were very nascent, um, it's, it's going to be very exciting. And I think the next phase is really going to see an institutional flood capital into this space and then probably staking it.
1: Yeah. Very well said, you know, in my view, there's nothing in the financial services ecosystem right now that has more risk or more excitement and opportunity than what's happening in crypto. Ben, such a pleasure having with you. I hope you'll come again and join us again soon
0: anytime
1: and thanks for joining us. Thank you for watching everyone.